This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 19th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In trying to shore up the so-called guardrails of democracy, where do libertarians agree with and differ from left and right? Cato's Walter Olson describes the guardrails of democracy project and what team libertarian believes are the most pressing long-term and short-term reforms. So to what extent did the, these various teams choose short-term versus long-term? Because I, I, I have predictions in my head, but I want to know what happened. Well, let me start with Team Libertarian, always the most interesting in my view, which had me taking what was largely a short-term view of how do you keep from having another election crisis or succession crisis in which people can't agree who was elected and all the issues that are adjacent to that. And then the other two parts of Team Libertarian were very much taking a long-term view. Uh, you had Clark Neely talking about the decay of the institution of the jury, which you may have read a lot from him about if you follow criminal justice issues. But of course, it does tie in with democracy and authoritarian government and the dangers of losing you know, the sorts of, of, of Republican liberties that, that we're used to in that, as the founders knew very well, well, runaway kings and governments in the old world had often been stopped in their tracks by the power of the citizen jury to acquit people when they were trying to prosecute their enemies. So there is a very real nexus there, which is nicely illuminated. But of course, it's a long-term kind of thing that he was talking about. Likewise, Elias Soman from George Mason uh, Law School, who's a Cato adjunct, wrote about voting with your feet, so-called. And that's one way of getting into the questions of localism, federalism, and choosing your own government by, you know, if you're in the D.C. area, you can choose to move to Maryland or Virginia and get two different flavors aside from the D.C. flavor of local governance. And uh, within each of those states, you can move to places that have considerably different uh, styles of governance. And Ilya Soman's point is that for most people in the practical world, this is actually the most important thing they ever wind up doing to select how they are governed. Their vote virtually never decides even a small race, let alone the uh, sort that, that will make a big difference in their lives. And so it deserves more thought. It deserves also a certain amount of cherishing in that it is this way that people not only make their own personal lives and those of their families better, but also create incentives for governments to be more efficient, be more well-suited to the values that people might move to them for, and apply pressure to governments that are corrupt, that embezzle money, that, I mean, all the different things. Uh, they will take and lose people. And so it ties in, again, it's hard to pick a more long-term issue than that, in that it doesn't generate prescriptions as to what should be done about the 2021 electoral college difficulty. And that third part was my specialty. I went in there, I said, it's important that we learn the lessons of the, call it a crisis, call it a near crisis, but the stuff that happened between election day 2020 and uh, January 6th, and then the inauguration of President Biden. We don't want to repeat it. We don't want to live through a different version, uh, perhaps involving control of the Senate or the Supreme Court. Uh, we need to figure out what went wrong. Uh, we need to tackle, uh, obviously, polarization is part of the problem. Obviously, public information is part of the problem. We need to decide whether there are useful things to do about that policy-wise or perhaps culture-wise if we can't do it policy-wise. So what did left and right deliver in terms of, of their views? And b before we get to that, start with the overlap to the extent that there was some. 
Well, the Electoral Count Act is something that people who follow Cato have been hearing a lot about. And uh, Team Progressive came out with very much the same thing and in more detail than what I did was basically put in a few sentences and then said, said, you know, see all these Cato publications for the fuller story. And Team Progressive agreed more or less down the line. Team Conservative didn't mention it. And then when someone immediately reacted saying, hey, there's nothing about the ECA, uh, they explained in a video appearance that they thought it was so obvious that it needed to be reformed that they weren't even going to put it in. So on that one issue, there was unanimous across the board support. Now that, as we know, will get you only so far. If they pass a reform, then we're on to all the other issues that might come along. But there were some interesting overlaps. For those who expected there to be a lot of overlap between the conservative and the libertarian reports, there was almost none. There was some good language from them about presidential emergency powers, again, something that I discussed in mind, which is part of the crisis atmosphere leading up to January 6th was all of the talk flying around about the president seizing voting machines or uh, declaring martial law or insurrection, all sorts of different things. And that leads directly to the question question of, all right, since something obviously could go wrong there next time, can we get Congress to narrow the president's emergency powers, better define what it is an emergency so it's not just whatever pops into his head or her head as an emergency, and, and down the line. Good suggestions on the military aspects of that from Team Conservative. Team Progressive skipped the issue, and I don't want to draw any negative inferences. I will, however, draw negative inferences against Congress, because Congress has heard from some of its you know, friends on all sides, including the progressive side as well as the libertarian and conservative sides, let's look at emergency powers. There's something dangerous there. And Congress always seems to get caught up in the garden of temptation of, wait a minute, what if one of our presidents wanted to declare an emergency? And you've seen this, you know, that Trump, like Obama, was criticized rightly for his throwing around talk of emergencies. And now Biden has done exactly the same thing to get a bunch of policies that he could not get through Congress. So there you have the incentives of the political system coming clearly through. Everyone wants to back their president's freedom of action to, to declare emergencies, even though the result is a set of rules that is dangerous for everyone. Anything else on the, the three? Well, I mean, I could go on all day, but I'll, I'll try to pick highlights. Team Conservative was interested in various types of structural reform of the federal government, some of them good, some of them more questionable. We certainly agree with them that Congress has abdicated its power and has delegated too much power to the administrative agencies, the president, the judiciary. Lots of agreement on that between us and, and Team Conservative. At the same time, they propose, and, and here's another one where I kind of see the point, uh, making it a little easier to amend the U.S. Constitution. Cato has published a paper or two on that, that it's so hard to get three quarters of the states to ratify that you know, one of the results, which they point out very nicely in their report, is that with people giving up for decades at a time at getting even a fairly modest constitutional amendment through the states, people turn to, well, let's have the Supreme Court do what is necessary to massage the law in order to get us that same change in the Constitution, which is not healthy. I mean, let's face it, it's not healthy. So, uh, you know, putting more uh, uh, political attention back on that amendment process might take the unhealthy attention away from the court nomination process. All very 
uh, satisfactory points. I didn't like the idea of gutting the president's veto over legislation. That, that was part of their ideas for empowering Congress. Well, um, the founders put that in for a very good reason. They did not want it to be easy to pass legislation. So enough said on that. On the progressive side, there was a lot of talk, which I agreed with, that it is very dangerous to have a large portion of the public believing that elections are not honest. Uh, it, that's just objectively dangerous. It leads us into not only the possibility of a succession crisis, uh, but also all of the problems that attend a system that is not viewed as legitimate because the elections are not viewed as having been honest. What to do about that is more difficult. They have various ideas that I don't think even would particularly work in keeping uh, out of office people who believe in um, incorrect theories about elections. I, I just don't think that they managed to, nor could I, since the point is, if you're going to observe democracy, then people with wrong views sometimes win. It's funny about that. You know, perhaps it's self-defeating, but people who I think are terribly out to lunch and misguided about election honesty are going to win some elections. And we have to live in a country in which that happens and figure out how to live together. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.